I'm Dr. Roger Mitchell, Jr., a forensic pathologist. And I'm Jay Aronson, a historian and human rights practitioner. And on this episode of Official Ignorance, the Death and Custody podcast, we're covering Ida B. Wells. Whose work documenting lynching sets the stage for our discussion on deaths in custody in the United States. Welcome to Official Ignorance, the Death and Custody podcast, hosted by Dr. Roger Mitchell Jr. and Professor Jay Aronson. You are now listening to the sounds of Official Ignorance. Hey, Jay, today we have a pretty cool episode for our listeners. We do. Whenever I go back to the material, it takes me back to May 2020 when I was researching the chapter on lynching and trying to figure out whether it was even a good idea to include the topic of lynching in a book on death and law enforcement custody when in reality the two topics are not identical and the two phenomena are not identical and and we discussed it and went back and forth and, and decided that it was a topic that we couldn't leave out. We had to include it. But it just really brought me back to three years ago uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And actually, uh, at the moment that George Floyd was murdered and the resonance that that had with the work that I was doing looking at the issue of lynching. My community, when we think about death in custody, there's actually no distance at all between death in custody and law enforcement and lynching. And I think that's, that's part of the conversation that we had was when an individual dies in custody or dies secondary to law enforcement force, we often think about the lynching history in our families and the lynching history in our community. I don't know if I ever told you there was, I have a family member that was lynched. Did I ever tell you yeah, about that? You did. You did yeah. tell me, but, but I don't remember the details. So I had a great, a great grandmother. Well, I think she was double great. She was the grandmother to my grandfather in rural Georgia as the story goes, she was taking her son to the market, uh, went into the market, left the son outside. The son and another young white boy got to playing and then got to tussling. When my triple great came out, her son was being beaten by a white woman. That enraged my triple great grandmother and as the story is is that they got into it and she struck her soon after that about four men grabbed her and took her into the woods and lynched her and then told her husband that there was a heifer in the woods a female cow in the woods and and she would make for some good food so when he was done there he could have her So he finished his sharecropping and went to find his wife hanging from a tree. And so that story has been told to me in some shape or form as early as I remember. And that is a story that's very similar in a lot of communities, a lot of families, particularly those families like mine that fled to the north to rid themselves from the violence that was happening in the South. And so one of the things that we found, Jay, was 
probably the most classic poem and song that depicts lynchings here in America. The poem is called Strange Fruit. Southern trees bear strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Pastor scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouths, scent of magnolias sweet and fresh, then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rut, for the trees to drop. Here is a strange and bitter crop. From the poplar trees. And I remember when I when we were doing the work on the lynching chapter and I found out who wrote the song because I thought it was written by Billie Holiday, the famous singer, uh, but found out that it was written by Abel Mirapol. And uh, he was a member of the American Communist Party at the time and and of Jewish descent. And I called you and I said, all right, which one are you? I think I'm Billie Holiday and you're Abe. Yeah, you didn't give me a choice. And I was, I didn't give I, you a at choice. first I was offended. It was racial because- profiling. Uh, it was it was absolutely racial profiling. I wanted to be Billy Holiday, and I wanted to be the one who got to kind of uh, bring those lyrics to the world. And then you actually explained to me why you decided to give me the role of Abel Mirapol, because he was a Jew and he had written this incredible poem. And Billy Holiday, a black woman, had given voice to it. It was a kind of uh, a symbol of the collaboration that we were embarking on. I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was it was right around the time that we were working on the lynching chapter, and I was doing that research and uh, and and really thinking through what it meant to start a narrative about death in law enforcement custody with the story of extrajudicial killings in this country, and I and and the story that you told me about your great great grandmother, great 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 grandmother. Uh, um, really put it into perspective. It's that everyone in the black community has a story of lynching in their families. And everyone also has a story about police violence, police brutality, or death in custody. And they both have the same impact, whether or not you see it directly, whether or not you personally experience the trauma, the trauma is passed down through families and through generations and has had and continues to have a massive impact on people, on families, and on communities. And, and that's when I realized that we had to do this chapter. We had to tell that story, um, that we couldn't leave out the lynching story. It, it also gave us the chance to tell the story of Ida B. Wells, which I think uh, is going back to that first conversation that we ever had when you said you wanted to know who the Ida B. Wells is of this issue were, who were the people in the face of government official ignorance? Uh, who were the people who were doing the work, who were trying to figure out who was dying, why they were dying, and how we could prevent those deaths? And so we can't tell the story of subsequent Ida B. Wells's without starting with her own story. 
Um, and I think that what we uncovered, uh, what we wrote about was so powerful and really set the stage for all of the people, including you, who have come after her and who are continuing her legacy in a different context, but actually in, in, in a not unrelated context. No, and and you remember during that time frame, you know, this was the late 1800s to the early 1900s, and this is when lynchings were extremely prominent, right? And this is when a time when, you know, um, lynchings were happening, you know, there were several thousand that occurred between this time frame, mm -hmm. between the late 1800s and the early 1900s up until about 1920 or so. And it was right in the crux of when Ida B. Wells was kind of forming her view of the world. She was fairly young and she was a, you know, a, a journalist, but, you know, she, she was, she wanted to, she wanted to tell a story that wasn't being told. And, and, and what we, what we found is that she wanted to count how many people died. She wanted data. So as much as she was a journalist, she was someone that believed in the power of the cumulative data and then trying to understand the stories that were being told surrounding those people that were dying um, uh, at the hands of this, these extrajudicial mobs. Mm -hmm. uh, and yep. and she wanted to tell that story, and that and that's really how even more she's even more of a connection to deaths in custody and the work of the journalist and the advocate to be. Um, she's more connected to the journalist and advocate of today mm -hmm. because of her cry for uh, for for the need for data collection. Yep, she she was really a a mixed methods researcher. I mean, I would just call her a. A researcher, even though she was a, a an investigative journalist or an advocate uh, by training, depending on how she described herself, but she really was a researcher, and she really was not just telling stories as anecdotes or counting, but she was doing both simultaneously. And she was very concerned about the reliability of her data. She was concerned about how people would respond to her data, and she was also concerned that people didn't just hear oh, you know, several, th this hundred many people died in any given year. And isn't that a tragedy? She wanted you to know who they were. She wanted you to know what their stories were. And one of the other things that links her and the issue of lynching to the story that we tell is that while law enforcement may not have explicitly been involved in lynchings, they were often either complicit in allowing the lynch mob or the the, the group that was uh, deciding to take the law into their own hands into wherever this individual was being held, or they would just take off their badges or take off their uniforms or take off whatever uh, official regalia they had, and they would actually participate in the in the the lynching in the murder. And so we we see that even though these are extrajudicial in the sense that they aren't officially law enforcement killings, they wouldn't be registered in that way today, that law enforcement has been involved in these deaths and involved in these injustices from the very beginning. That There were so many cases in which the uh, law enforcement officials who were around at the time that the lynching occurred could have stopped it, 
but they not only chose not to, but they watched. They were part of the crowd. They were part of the, the, the community that was being supposedly cleansed of this terrible person or um, that the death was occurring in the name of this community. They, they stood by and watched gleefully in many cases. Uh, and, and so, you know, you can see that, you can see the continuity. And I'm sure that's part of the story that gets told in families like yours. No, and, and and to your point, right, you know, she tells stories within the Red Record, and we tell stories within our book of individuals that were even taken out of the jails themselves, mm-hmm. right? In so, many I mean, in many cases, they walk right past the jailer and pull individuals out of the local jail to hang them. And that's not just the law enforcement's um, culpability, but we identify that the coroners are complicit. Yeah. which is a through thread with what we identify later and talk about later in the book as well. We, we, we talk about these deaths at the hands of unknown persons, mm-hmm. um, which today is probably like the undetermined case. And in very real ways, everyone is known. I mean, you're talking about crowds of hundreds who've gathered. We're talking about in the newspapers, clipping, saying, come, to the picnic and watch the lynching. Mm-hmm. And then yet the coroner in the coroner's inquest, which is what was the official way of beginning a death investigation during that time in that coroner's inquest, uh, they would often say that they had no evidence of who may have been the individual who's responsible for this death. When many townspeople, including the coroner themselves would know. And, um, this was exculpatory in often cases. I mm-hmm. mean, this was an uh, antecedent to the grand jury, quite yep. frankly. This, you, this you couldn't have a prosecution. Case. You couldn't prosecute someone if the coroner decided that it was impossible to know who had killed the individual in question. Yeah, and this was a common practice in the South. I mean, we, there's, there's even peer review literature. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the scientific and public health literature that talks about this inaccuracy of coroners at this time in our American history, which is the early 1900s. And and remember, this is when the NAACP is being formed, right? And the NAACP is really being formed on the back of an anti-lynching movement uh, during, in in, in part, during that time frame. Yeah, we talk about that in the book and we talk about the work of the Tuskegee Institute and the the differences of opinion that they had about what constituted a lynching and also i was quite surprised to uh to see a debate happening that got so heated that there had to be a special meeting held a a kind of peacemaking meeting and a a consensus building meeting about whether police killings were actually lynchings right one of the things we see is that the official practice of lynching over time in large measure because of the work of the people who we document in our book becomes a little bit less uh, acceptable um, because people in the South, leaders, elites in the South, want to modernize that region, want to make the South safe for business and safe for tourism and safe for people from the North to move. And so they go through a, a kind of process of trying to cleanse the South of lynching. And part of that involved deciding on a definition that limited the number of cases that could count. The other part of it was that as the criminal legal system uh, professionalizes and ramps up and begins to target black people, quite frankly, 
that there's less of a need for lynching to take place because the criminal legal system is no longer a kind of political patronage system. It's a, it's a system of controlling and containing particular people, particular elements. In the North, it's often uh, certain Eastern European immigrants, uh, like my family from Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, and in the South, it's about containing Black people. And as Black people, like your relatives, move North, the ideas about Black criminality move with them. The theories of Black criminality and of Black inferiority move with them. And police in the North begin to see Black people in the same way that police and society in the South did. It's almost like a, a baton transfer. You know, you, you think of a relay race and, and the lynchers are kind of handing the baton of keeping Black people and Black communities in check over to law enforcement. And so it's no surprise uh, that lynchers no longer feel the need to do what they're doing, um, that police are adopting uh, violent tactics and violent means of control um, when engaging in their work in Black communities. And it really is, it, it's, a, it's a continuation in that way as well. And that's also something that we discuss. You look at the decline of lynching and the rise of capital punishment, across the country, but especially in the South, um, the, the, they happen at the same time. And it's yeah. not coincidental. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because you're talking about this and we, you and I, you know, talk about hip hop and I can't but think about KRS-One, um, Black Cops, mm -hmm. and how he does wordplay from yep. overseer to officer. Overseer! 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 Oh. Overseer! Overseer! Officer! 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 And, and that's not inaccurate, right? Mm -hmm. Historically, it's actually extremely accurate. You know, Ida B. Wells, she wasn't just fighting for lynching to stop. She was also fighting against a journalistic oppression. You know, as a black woman writer, um, she also was trying to find the truth amongst a racist pen. Uh, and that racist pen was you know, really trying to evoke fear in the readers, primarily of these white newspapers, to justify the killings of men and women extrajudicially. And that carried, that continued. So that didn't go anywhere. That continued and often acted as a backdrop. And even today, acts as a backdrop to justify excessive force and killing amongst black people mm -hmm. uh, in this country. You know, back when she was reporting on it, they were always, you know, suggesting that it was, you know, rape or it was murder or suspected murder. Uh, but what you do a good job in writing about and pulling out and what we talk about in the book is the fact that, yes, there may have even been individuals that got lynched that may have even been guilty of what people said they did, but they never got their day in court. Yep. They never got an opportunity to defend like a citizen of the United States, uh, innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. And we tell a great story about an individual who had mental health issues mm -hmm. and engaged in a murder of a white man, but him himself had some mental health issues that may have held up in a court of law. But no one ever heard those mental health issues. No yeah. one ever was able to foster a defense um, yeah. because the individual was lynched. So not only 
it's important to point out that she uncovered and ensured that was proper data collection and proper stories that were being told. But she also was shedding a light on the racist stories that were being told Mm -hmm. and the fact that there was not a date in court for these individuals, whether they were guilty or whether or not they were innocent. Yeah. One of my favorite things about her and about others uh, who who followed in her footsteps was that not only did she call out the racism of Southern journalists in the way that they portrayed the lynchings and the reasons for the lynchings, she, you know, the, the, the most common rationale or justification was that we're protecting white women from these brutes who only knew rape and, and murder. In reality, that wasn't the main reason why people were lynched when you actually look at the data. So she showed that the justification didn't even hold up. Um, she and others also showed, or, or also, um, uh, I wouldn't say showed, but she used the words of the lynchers and of their apologists against them, that she took this as evidence of a crime taking place and used it to build her enumeration of the number of people who were being lynched. And it's kind of like taking the the murderer's testimony, the only testimony that we have or the only account that we have, because these these crimes weren't making it to court for the most part. Um, th- there was actually uh, the only criminal prosecution that ever happened in the, in the Supreme Court was a, a case in which the jailers um, were, were, I believe, holding a federal can't remember the exact story, but they were holding a, a prisoner. And it it was clear that they had allowed the lynchers to come in and take this individual. And the people who committed the crime, the murder, weren't ever prosecuted. But the jailer, the sheriff in the case, it's called USV Ship, if I remember correctly, um, was given a kind of a slap on the wrist for allowing the lynchers to come into the jail and take this person who was supposed to be in their custody. Um, and so we, we see that when there isn't due process, the stories of the individuals who are killed, who are murdered, lynched, um, have to be told and they have to be told in creative ways. I think that was one of the main accomplishments of Wells and of, of the works at Tuskegee and of others who came after um, in, at the NAACP and at other institutions. Uh, and so you, you see this kind of this need to turn the words of the people who are justifying the crime against them to even know that the crime occurred. Yeah, you know, I'm listening to you and, and seeing the image of a man was lynched yesterday. Mm-hmm. That flag that, that yeah. the NAACP used to fly. Um, and I don't think people realize that that flag was flown every time the NAACP got wind of someone dying. And um, Wells did not just believe that journalism was the answer. She realized that there had to be a coalition of people that were looking at it um, Mm -hmm. and reporting on it in a way that could make change and even legislation, Mm -hmm. you know, and putting forth the anti-lynching law. Yeah. And um, it wasn't until recently uh, in, in 2020, uh, 2022, that there was the Emmett Till anti-lynching law mm-hmm. signed into law by then President Biden. That was a seminal moment 
because we're writing the book around that same time. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember yeah. going to the signing of the anti-lynching act that what is called the Emmett Till anti-lynching act and letting you know that, you know, everybody was pushing their way to meet Biden, right? Everybody mm -hmm. was taking selfies and touching his hand and running to meet the president. And I wanted to meet Michelle Duster, who was the great granddaughter of Ida B. Wells. And, yeah. I, you know, I was able to get a picture with her and that made my day um, because I was able to touch her great granddaughter who um, was there during the signing. And so, you know, we're talking about from the 1920s to the 2020s that it took 100 years yeah. for lynching to be made a, a federal law. And, you know, that goes to what we've done here and what we're talking about and how important it is to now just because lynching has taken on a new form called death in custody, as particularly when we're talking about the George Floyds of the paradigm and the continuum, that we're now trying to bring not just the voice of journalists forward, but the voices of social scientists and lawyers and physicians and activists and advocates and bringing their voices forward to say, there is a way that we can prevent death in custody. There's a way that we can prevent the law enforcement hand at causing death, as well as the lack of care that may contribute to death in the jail system. And that connection in the first chapter of the book, that connection between lynching is the through thread mm -hmm. that we really want people to realize. There are people's communities and families that are suffering that loss of a death in custody, very similarly to an individual that has lost someone to a lynching. We start off, you, you, you talk about a picture, uh, one mm. of the most classic pictures of lynching. Tell our listeners a little bit about that about that picture and the connection you made. I, I, I really like that connection. Yeah, I, I was actually just going to step in and change the subject because I really wanted to talk about this with you. And it's the question of imagery. And it's mm. the question of the impact of lynching imagery and death in custody imagery, especially the videos that we now are exposed to around death in custody and death at the hands of police. That's how I got into this. That was sort of the first thing that, that made me think about death in custody and want to even ask questions, not, not even write about it. I, I don't think I had that in my head when we, uh, when I, well, I know I didn't have that in my head when we first met, um, but it was those videos that were so close to the ones that I was seeing in the other contexts that I was working in in human rights documentation. And so imagery is something that has been very uh powerful for me and and traumatizing to me as a, as a human being, um, but also central to the way that I see the world and the work that I do. And the image in question, the one that you're talking about, is a very famous postcard that, uh, that Bob Dylan actually sings about in Desolation Row. They're selling postcards of the hanging They're It's a, the aftermath of a lynching June 15th, 2020, to be exact of three young black men who had been accused of a robbery and a gang rape of a young woman in town. And 
it's odd or ironic that this is the only known lynching that ever occurred in Minnesota. Um, but the reason that it had such resonance for me wasn't so much uh, that it's a well-known image or that it is anything out of the ordinary or even that it happened in Duluth, Minnesota, which is not a place we associate with lynching. It was that it was not only exactly a hundred years, almost to the day that we were working on that chapter, but it was 99 years and like 345 days um, before the murder of George Floyd. And so for the entire time that we were writing the book, we juxtaposed that image of the three men hanging in Duluth from a telephone pole and Derek Chauvin's knee on the neck of George Floyd. And every time I opened up our document, our working document, I was confronted with that image. I was confronted with the similarities between three young black men hanging from a pole and a middle age, not that different in age from us, of a man who was being asphyxiated by a police officer. And just like a hundred years before, there were a crowd of people, some of whom were police officers who were standing by and some who are actually documenting it and trying to stop it. And it's those, the images, the video of George Floyd being murdered is I think what led to the racial reckoning that we had that was happening as we were writing the book that was kind of happening all around us. You know, I, I just remember during the, the pandemic when we were in quarantine, having these crazy discussions with my kids who are around the same age as your kids about policing, about abolition, about police brutality, about systemic racism. And it was like, it, it was just everywhere around me and I couldn't get away from it. And it, and it, I imagine, and I don't really know, but I imagine that that's the kind of steady state in black families, that it's kind of always there in the black community, that you're never far from violence of the legal system in a way that white people in a way that my family can kind of dip in and out of it as we choose you know we can talk about it when we want to we can ignore it when we don't and and it was it was seeing the white faces in both cases and seeing the the crowd that made me realize that i couldn't look away um, that i had the responsibility to look um, and i just you know I, I'll never forget those feelings that i had and those conversations that we had and that i had with my family and opening up the document and seeing those two pictures for the entire time that we were writing side by side. No, and, and you know, there's a lot of people in my community, Jay, my wife probably included, who just doesn't watch it anymore, you know, just refuses to watch it. And it's probably not just my community. It's probably a lot of people's community that's just it's too much uh, to consume on a regular basis. It's important to not let those images, you know, hit dull, right? For us to mm -hmm. get used to the fact that individuals are dying for any cause, but dying when a system is pledged to protect the life of its citizenry and then um, can casually um, either take it or look the other way when death is occurring. It's really the responsibility of the criminal legal system to have the care for its citizenry that is being arrested or, or coming into its care. And, and I know that as a forensic pathologist, images are a constant, constantly seeing images of individuals that have died from, from many causes. 
But when particularly death in custody, um, I've taken obviously a, a, a closer look at these cases uh, in a way that turns what may be an anger or maybe a discontent with what leads to these deaths, but, but has been able to turn it into trying to educate community about these deaths, trying to educate other practitioners, trying to educate journalists, you know, writers, um, advocates about how death in custody occurs and then what we can do to prevent it. And I think that's the power, that's really the connection between, you know, my work and the work of Ida B. Wells is that we're taking these singular stories and then looking at them and forcing other people to look at them differently. No, it wasn't an individual that was high on cocaine, got excited, got engaged with law enforcement, and then had a sudden cardiac arrest, which what we see in excited delirium, which is a diagnosis that is no longer in favor in the medical community, but still finds itself being taught within our law enforcement ranks. It's not that. It is truly a altercation that has led to the death of an individual. And, and, and I don't paint a broad brush. Every case is different, particularly cases that I read or perform second or first autopsies on. Those cases each have their own individual merit, but there are commonalities surrounding death and custody that we're uncovering case by case that we can uncover more about these commonalities if we had global data. Mm-hmm. Right. Only yep. the singular practitioner in the form of the forensic pathologist that has been able to see case after case can put together that thread of commonality. But when it's a public health approach, we can look at the entire group of deaths in custody and then have smart people from all over the world looking at the data, trying to find commonalities, trying to find differences, trying to find ways of approaching and decreasing these deaths. Um, And these are the types of deaths that it's not going to be as easy to start having them fall out of favor like lynchings did, Mm -hmm. right? Because the lynchings were illegal, Right. Yep. They, they were clearly illegal. Um, the issue with death in custody is that law enforcement is the peculiar institution and in that it can utilize lethal force to resolve conflict. And mm-hmm. in those cases, it can be very legal. So, you know, this requires an even more in-depth, multidisciplinary approach to, to decreasing. And, and we'll hear about this throughout the podcast. It'll always... Yeah find a way to start talking about how we can improve data collection like Ida B. Wells did and how we can use that data to prevent the deaths. And that's at the end of the day, the goal of what Ida B. Wells did and what our goal is um, today. Yeah, I totally agree. And to end the episode on a positive note, one of the major differences or things that's happened since lynching is that the coroner system, although it still exists in in large uh, portions of the country, has been replaced by the medical examiner system. And medical examiners are by no means perfect, as we both know, um, that there's still a lot of room for bias, but that there's a more professionalized system and way of doing death investigation. And so 
it's still quite common for coroners and medical examiners to try and cover up uh, or to excuse deaths in custody. But the kind of systematic production of ignorance around who's culpable is falling out of favor. I, I do think um, we're seeing that there are many forensic pathologists and many professionals, both in, within the, the coroner ranks and the medical examiner ranks, who want to do something about this. And, and so the checkbox is a kind of uh, a further way uh, of continuing that evolution um, away from the coroner system of the South at the time and of the West as well that, that covered up lynching. And we can actually create a system that captures death in custody, doesn't assume that a death in custody is the fault of the legal system or the fault of a particular individual, but serves as a signal that something's happening and tells us that we as a society, whether we're public health practitioners or journalists or scholars of some other sort, that, hey, this is something that we need to look at. We need to pay attention to this. We need to see what's going on. We need to know, is this a death that would have happened no matter what? Or is this a death that is directly related to interaction with the legal system? And again, that interaction m might not arise to the level of criminality. It might not be a criminal offense. But we need to know what's going on here and what can we do to reduce the, the number of deaths in custody and make sure that we don't continue this pattern of official ignorance. And so I hope that by drawing the connections between the story of lynching in this country and the story of deaths in custody, we can actually ensure that we, we won't need to rely on this kind of uh, unofficial group of, of documenters forever that will have official records. Uh, and, and it's not, that's not the conclusion, that's the starting point. And that's, I think that's a point that we make in the book. And we really want to make over and over and over again, that a checkbox, good official data is the starting point for a shift in the conversation about deaths in custody and in the prevalence of deaths in custody, it's by no means the end point. Yeah, that's good, Jay. And Jay, um, I think that next set of episodes will really help our listeners understand exactly what we're talking about as it relates to death in custody, the complicit nature of the medical examiner and coroner system, how imperfect that system is, and how even that needs to be improved. It was great to talk to you, Roger. It was it was actually cathartic to to talk through some of these things. Uh, some of the stuff we've talked about quite a few times, and some of the stuff I've kind of kept bottled up for three years now. And and it's it's nice to have a chance to talk to you about it. Uh, and I, I think that there are lots of other moments like that throughout the course of the podcast where we're able to debrief with one another, not about the factual side of things or about the historical side of things or about policy, but of how we felt when we were writing the book and when we were having heated conversations and, and intense conversations. And, uh, I mean, it's not a, a formal sign off by any means, but that's kind of what I was thinking at the moment. You are listening to Official Ignorance, the Death in Custody podcast.